2: An I
3: did know
2: was Why is so far? Like, it sounds so simple. They had no idea. But now the data's... Pe- I find
0: this not only refreshing, but, but at some level astounding. Nature. Nature.
2: Welcome back to The Nature Podcast. This week on the show, we'll be looking at the ethical questions raised by model minds, and finding out about an
0: updated structure an important enzyme. Plus, we'll have the search for methane on Mars. This is The Nature Podcast for the 26th of April, 2018. I'm Benjamin Thompson. And I'm Adam Levy.
2: Over the centuries, animal models have been used for all sorts of biological research and have enabled some major discoveries. But when it comes to studying something as complicated as human brain conditions, we really need human brain tissue to study. This week, a diverse group of researchers, ethicists and philosophers have collectively published a comment piece in which they speak out about their concerns for the future of brain research. Here's reporter Ellie Mackay to tell us more.
4: The pages of Nature this week contain an image of something called a brain organoid, It's novel, it has astonishingly futuristic applications, and it raises some interesting ethical questions. I spoke to Nita Farahani, lead author of the comment piece about these organoids, and started by asking her about the current standard way of studying human brain tissue, growing human pluripotent stem cells in a dish.
1: So you could, for example, just create a two-dimensional, like a flat sheet of cells. So you might pick one kind of brain cell type and grow that in a dish, but it's limited in how useful it is because it doesn't show you the interconnections between different brain regions or different cell types.
4: So what is the solution? What would be the ideal model?
1: What's ideal is to be able to study brain tissue that's either still functioning or to be able to grow something like a brain organoid that would mimic some of the functions of the human brain.
4: So mini brain organoids, it sounds very sci-fi. Right. What are these organoids and how are they different from these pluripotent stem cell sheets?
1: So brain organoids are really terrific. They are three-dimensional pluripotent stem cells that can differentiate and even self-organize into different cell types that are all organized together.
4: And so we're talking about separate brain regions like the cortex or the basal ganglia
1: and you can combine those so there's communication between them? That's exactly right. You can actually assemble different regions together that have been grown independently and these brain assembloids can then have interconnections between the regions so that you can actually have electrical activity that occurs across the different regions.
4: And what sort of size are these
1: organoids or assembloids? Right now the largest organoids are about four millimeters in diameter. They have about two to three million cells. I mean, you know, this is tiny in many ways compared to an adult human brain. That being said, at least functionally and even cellularly, they give us a much better proxy already than many of the animal models.
4: And these organoids have already had applications so far in studying things like the Zika virus, uh, autism spectrum disorders and schizophrenia.
1: That's right, which is exciting, especially if you think about some of the ethical limitations of being able to do some of that research in humans. To be able to do it with human brain tissue creates quite an exciting opportunity in advance.
4: And you mentioned in the article that it's not just the organoids on their own that need to be considered. There's also the idea of putting human tissues in pigs or mice, for example, and creating what's referred to as a chimera. Right. So we already
1: have started to create chimeras. So taking an organoid and putting the whole organoid inside of an animal model that would enable it to develop blood vessels that could allow it to grow. These are steps that we've already taken. And when researchers transplanted
4: human brain cells into mice brains, they created human mice chimeras that showed improved learning. Yeah. So at what point does one of these chimeras become human?
1: So putting human glial cells into mice enabled them to perform better in certain learning tasks. Does that make them more human-like? Potentially, but I I think that they're still, you know, a, a very far distance from being human. And what about the organoids themselves? Could they be defined as human? Mm -hmm. That's a, a, a very tough question. So how do we define human is a question I think that gets to the very heart of what do we think of as personhood and what do we think of as alive versus dead? Those are some of the questions that we think will be posed by the exciting advances in this field.
4: And it's been shown with some of these organoids that they have the ability to respond to external stimuli like light. So they're responsive. Are there then questions of whether they could become conscious even?
1: I think right now we think the possibility of any consciousness in these organoids is extremely remote. But the mere fact that it is remote rather than impossible creates a need for us to have the conversation now about greater research that unpacks consciousness, uh, whether or not we can detect it, and if so, how we might address that.
4: And. Why not stop the research altogether if there are these concerns? So
1: we believe that it would be unethical to stop the research at this point. This is our best hope for being able to alleviate a tremendous amount of human suffering that's caused by neurological and psychiatric disorders. Um, and while every technological advance brings some risk with it, we believe that these are risks that can be addressed with ethical guidelines rather than calling for some kind of halting of the research.
4: And so you've published a long list of guidelines, including some methodological considerations, such as how to handle and dispose of these organoids, as well as what consent would be needed from donors, for example. That's right. But other issues like welfare may even need addressing if these organoids perhaps in the future are developed further and are considered more human-like. Are you worried as a group that this is a reality that's fast approaching?
1: Um, I think if you look at the people who made this call together, these are the scientists who are really. At the cutting edge of a lot of this research. We recognize that it is a remote possibility today. So um, one of the things that I think is really powerful about this comment is that it brings together scientists, ethicists, and philosophers working in this space to put guidelines and frameworks into place before we're right up against that reality. So what do you hope the next steps will be? We hope that it is a call to action, that it starts to spur a great deal of conversations that could enable and help guide the kind of deep ethical quandaries of this terrific and exciting field of scientific progress.
2: That was Ellie Mackay talking to Nita Farahani from Duke University in the United States. You can read the comment piece at nature.com
0: forward slash news. Right, listeners, for this next section of the podcast, I want to jump straight to the end. No, not of the show but of your chromosomes. You see, the ends of chromosomes are capped by short sequences of DNA that are repeated many, many times. Together, these repeats are called telomeres, and they're made by the enzyme telomerase. Now, telomeres protect chromosomes from damage, but also act as a kind of built-in countdown timer. Each time a cell divides, its telomeres get a bit shorter, and when they're down to a certain level, the cell stops dividing or dies. In humans, at least, most cells don't produce the telomerase enzyme, But a lot of cancer cells do. In fact, some estimates suggest that as many as 90% of tumors produce the enzyme, which helps them to keep dividing indefinitely. And it's not just cancer. Telomerase malfunction is involved in a number of genetic diseases as well. Telomerase's role in disease makes it an attractive target for therapies. However, efforts to produce drugs aimed at telomerase have been hampered because researchers don't have a detailed structure of what the human enzyme looks like. Things have taken a step in the right direction this week, though, with a paper published in Nature that gives a more detailed insight into the makeup of the human telomerase enzyme. The paper's first author is Tihong Yong Nguyen, who also goes by the name Kelly, from the University of California, Berkeley.
5: So we're interested in telomerase because we want to understand the basic mechanism, how it works, right? So as in simple term, you know, protein enzymes, usually they fold into this three-dimensional shape. And... Knowing the shape is very important. It helps with manipulating it. It helps with drug design and doing further studies on it. So it opens up a lot of doors to many possibilities.
0: Telomerase has been studied in a lot of eukaryotic organisms, from protozoa to humans. And while the specific makeup of the enzyme may differ from species to species, a couple of things are similar.
5: So telomerase has two main components across all eukaryotes. Uh, Telomerase reverse transcriptase. This is the catalytic subunit. And telomerase RNA, which carries the template for this copying reaction.
0: So the telomerase reverse transcriptase, known as TERT, and the telomerase RNA are what enables the enzyme to produce repeating DNA sequences. In 2013, a group of researchers produced a low-resolution structure of human telomerase, which looks a bit like the letter C. The team suggested that the enzyme was made up of two lobes, each containing TERT and the telomerase RNA, connected by a linker in between. Now, Kelly and her colleagues have proposed an update to this structure. They used a technique called cryo-electron microscopy to help them build up a picture of what telomerase looks like bound to its DNA substrate. This work again shows a structure with two lobes but the details are different to what was suggested before.
5: When we were able to get to high enough resolution to see what's in each lobe we found that one lobe has that catalytic subunit surrounded by telomerase RNA and the other lobe Has something that we call the HACA ribonuclear protein. And this is actually the very interesting part because this is where there's been debates in the field whether it's these two lobes are two copies of Tert and the telomerase RNA or just one and then the rest of them are other factors.
0: Kelly's work suggests that the latter is more likely with the human telomerase enzyme comprising of two distinct sections tethered together. One of these sections contains the TERT and telomerase RNA we talked about before, while the other is this HACA ribonucleoprotein complex, which Kelly thinks could help the enzyme with things like localization within the nucleus. The human telomerase structure presented in this new work is the highest resolution yet, but there's still work to be done.
5: So currently we're at 7 to 8 angstrom, where where we can see the architecture, we can fit models into it, but we're not at the resolution, we can see side chains of amino acids. So therefore, that we still have a long way to go. For example, for drug design, whether we want to characterize something binding to telomerase, we need to see these atoms of the drug binding to atoms of telomerase. So we will need three to four angstrom resolution, so high resolution. So currently, we are at medium
0: while a higher level of detail is needed before drugs can be developed to target telomerase, its role in so many cancers and genetic diseases means that this work, medium resolution or not, will offer researchers new insight into its structure. To read Kelly's paper and an Associated News and news article, head over to nature.com news.
2: Still to come, we've got the news chat, but before then, I just wanted to thank our listener Fawzan for getting in touch. Fawzan tells us his two sons, Ibrahim and Iman, enjoy listening to the show in the car with their dad. We're thrilled to hear that the podcast nourishes your curiosity and inquisitiveness.
0: Well, if you'd like to get in touch and let us know where you're listening to the show, you can do so on email, podcast at nature.com.
2: Or if you'd like to leave us a nice review on iTunes, that would be amazing as well. And it would help us get the podcast out to even more listeners. Right now, though, let's get back to the show. It's time for the Research Highlights, brought to you this week by Shamani Bundel.
3: Have you ever wanted to sober up speedily? Researchers in Los Angeles have been raising the bar in their field with some anti-alcohol pills. The treatment takes the form of two ingestible nanocapsules. One contains enzymes that turn alcohol into acetaldehyde, while the enzyme in the other pill turns the toxic acetaldehyde into acetate. This process is similar to what the liver does naturally, and the pills were shown to quickly reduce blood alcohol levels in mice. In humans, this could be useful for preventing liver damage. Raise a glass to that research over at Advanced Materials. And from the bar to the bedroom, what's so great about sex? Well, researchers have turned to stick insects to find out. Certain species of stick insect in the genus Timema have been reproducing only asexually for a million years The researchers compared five asexual species with five sexually reproducing species and looked for differences in their RNA. They concluded that the asexual insects had more harmful mutations in their genomes than the sexual ones. This supports the idea that harmful mutations are one of the big disadvantages to reproducing asexually, although sexual reproduction isn't without its disadvantages either. Get some more insect sex education over at molecular biology and evolution
0: right then everyone it's time for the news chat and i'm joined here in the studio by nisha gained one of the news editors here at nature um nisha how are you doing today
6: i'm well thanks
0: ben excellent well thanks for joining us well nisha last week on the news chat i chatted to richard van norden about a future satellite that's going to be sent up to look for methane above oil wells on earth um this next story is also about satellites and methane, but a little bit further away. Uh, what have you got for us?
6: That's right, Ben. We've got a satellite that's circling the planet Mars that's just reached its scientific orbit, and it is poised to solve one of the most controversial mysteries in Martian science. And that's why methane is found on the red planet.
0: So uh, so who's put this satellite in space then, Nisha?
6: So this is a joint mission of the European Space Agency and Russia's space agency, Roscosmos, and it's part of a broader mission called ExoMars. The orbit that we're interested in and talking about today is called the Trace Gas Orbiter. Um, It launched in March 2016 and it reached the planet in October 2016. But since then, it's been doing a special kind of manoeuvre where it circles the planet in a series of quite erratic orbits in order to get to the correct position.
0: Um, I mean, it, it can't be the first time that people have looked for methane on Mars, though, surely.
6: No, and other crafts have found methane on Mars. NASA's Curiosity sees it and so does another Mars Orbiter called Mars Express. But this is the first First time a spacecraft has been specifically designed to look for methane. methane is what they call a trace gas. It's present in very small amounts along with other gases like water vapor and ozone. Um, But methane is of particular interest to researchers because it could be a signature for life. And that has everyone excited.
0: And why then is methane a signature for potential life?
6: If we think about methane on Earth, 95% originated from current and past biological activities such as cows and livestock and so on. So it's quite natural to ask whether the same is true on Mars. But it could also have a geologic origin. That means that it could come from chemical reactions between water and rocks, or it might be stored in crystal cages below the surface.
0: So if methane has been discovered by other rovers, then what what extra sort of information is this satellite going to give us and, and how much is kind of already there?
6: Researchers have been looking for methane on Mars for 50 years or more, but they have only been detecting hints of it for about 15 years. And many of those findings have been quite controversial and met with both immense interest and criticism. Curiosity now detects a background level of methane of about 0.5 parts per billion. By contrast, on Earth, the concentration is about 1,900 parts per billion. So it's a very, very low level of methane. But what's really interesting is that researchers have also seen huge spikes in this concentration. Sometimes they detect what might be big plumes of methane or just slightly smaller burps. And there are many hypotheses about why these spikes might occur, but there's no real consensus. This orbiter is going to look for methane like no probe has before. By circling the planet continuously, it's going to be able to build a global map of methane and these other trace gases, and it will be able to see where it varies by location and also how it varies over time.
0: And so if it's all systems go, then when can we expect the first results back to Earth?
6: The project scientists are now in a phase where they're trying to figure out what the probe's sensitivity is, whether it's going to be as good as they hope it will be, and that can be affected by things like Martian dust. So the next month or so will be aimed at finding the sensitivity, and then within the next few months they expect to start receiving data, the data that everybody has really been craving about methane on Mars.
0: All right, well, let's move on to our second story then, Nisha, and this couldn't be more different. And uh, in this case, we're going to be looking at uh, postdoctoral funding and, uh, and the state of uh, funding for early career researchers in the Netherlands.
6: Yeah, so this is a really interesting study and it's looking at how the fate, that's a bit of a loaded word, of junior researchers or early career scientists could be decided by whether they get a certain grant early in their career.
0: So who's undertaken this study then and and maybe what have they found?
6: So this has been done by a group of researchers based in the Netherlands and what they've done is look at a particular early career grant that is given out by the Dutch National Science Funding Agency. Now when scientists apply for grant funding they're often ranked and what the researchers did here was look at the applicants who just qualified for the grant and then look at the applicants who just missed out on the grant and they compared how their career paths continued.
0: Mm, so a fine line then between, I guess, um, inverted commas, success and failure. Uh, and and w- what happened to these two groups?
6: What the researchers found is that the successful group, so those that just qualified for the grant, went on to secure more than twice as much research funding in the subsequent eight years. And they also found that the winners were 50% more likely to become a professor than the ones who just missed out on the grant.
0: And do they offer any suggestions as to why this might be?
6: yeah, well, one of the reasons is just that researchers who lost out on the grant were much less likely to apply for future funding. In fact, the researcher who led the study said there is a group of very young talented scholars who have bad luck and they don't get the same resources to bring their ideas to life.
0: And this seems like a you know a fairly important result then, so at least give an idea of how one's career could go, depending on you know whether you're just over or just under. Um, has anybody else been looking into this at all?
6: Yeah, this isn't necessarily a new finding. It's just that the researchers were able to compare the fate of the young academics. Um, in a slightly different way and giving more detail. But previous studies have made very similar findings. For example, the same was found for a particular early career fellowship from the US National Institutes of Health.
0: All right, well, I guess the most important question, Nisha, is then what can we do about it?
6: Well, funders say that they're aware of this problem, that early success can influence their future careers. And what other researchers say is that this really emphasises the need for thoughtful, informed mentoring of young academics about applying for funding and persevering with these sorts of applications.
0: That does seem like a fairly important story then that could affect a lot of people's careers. Um, Listeners, for more on the latest science news, head over to nature.com slash news. And in case you didn't catch it, Nisha made her debut on the latest edition of our roundtable show, Backchat, hosted by none other than Adam Levy.
2: Yeah, so this month we were talking about sexual harassment in academia, the cult of celebrity in science, and a social media scandal. No prizes for guessing what social medium that was about. Listeners, you can find that wherever you get The Nature Podcast. I'm Adam Levy.
0: And I'm Benjamin Thompson. Thanks for listening.